You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble on drum, beat out old trouble on drum, and kick old trouble out the door, beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, and kick old trouble out the door, kick him 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 out the door. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live. That's right, streaming live, boys and girls, on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And on the other side of the screen, no, we don't have our guest, Adrian Ferrugia. He's still not here. But we do have our producer, Kelly Whitworth, the world's greatest producer. How are you, Joe? I was well, but I looked at our radio font total. It's nine hundred and ninety-seven dollars and thirteen cents. Mm-hmm. Now I would like somebody to ring up in the next hour and donate, courtesy of Radical Australia, to the three CR radio font. Yes, that would be good. Yeah, and don't donate two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and 87 cents. A minimum of $5. And 87 and cents. Cent. Whatever you donate, you've got to put 87 cents at the end so we can get over this grant. All right. And the beauty is you can do what Kerry Packer used to do and the rich and famous and infamous do. You can get a legal, legitimate tax deduction by listening to Radical Australia. Could you imagine? But you've got to do it before tomorrow. Not by tomorrow. listening, by donating. Well, you've got to listen before Listen you and then donate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's why you're the producer and I'm just the, you know, the mm-hmm. show party. You do all the work, I get the credit. Now, poor old Adrian Ferrucci doesn't know what's hit him. How are you, Adrian? I'm good, mate. I'm sure you're good, <laughs> but I ask you, are you well? Are you sick? I'm well. You're I'm well. well. You're well, because you're good. I mean, how do I know you're good? Come on. Give me a break. But just by looking at me, you can tell that I'm good. Well, you're a bearded ball man. <laughs> <laughs> they always look the same. They all look the same. I mean, I walk, <laughs> I'm walking down the stairs and there's two of them. Yeah. There's Kelly and two bearded ball men. I'm thinking, <laughs> couldn't be Adrian, could it? But then I saw it was Joe's, Joe M's head and I thought, yeah, that's the other one, Adrian. Now, what year were you born? Uh, 1988. Excuse me. What was that again? <laughs> 1988, yeah. Why are you bald? Oh, genetics. Oh, excuse genetics. me. Hang on. Can, can... Why are you so hairy? <laughs> because I'm a southern Italian. Okay. Yes. I'm a Sicilian. We're hairy by I nature. Can tell. I knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. I've got an older brother and he you know, he really showed me a few years before. I knew it was going to happen. Did he? Mm. What? Really? Yeah. Genetic. Genetics. Well, you know, some people say it's because you're a very intelligent background. Well, we're just basically, you know, uh, workhorses, us, us hairy... Her suit, people. 
Yeah, but yeah, I learned from my father that you've got to comb your hair down as you get older to cover the ball <laughs> patches. But you, you've you done the right thing. I just dive straight in. I accepted yeah, it yeah. very early on. You, you've become a hipster. <laughs> it's good to see. So born in 88. Mm. Mm, that does, you know, you've got to speak for 54 minutes. And yeah, you're born in 88. It's a long time to fill in. Yeah. Right. Well, well, that's up to you. Well, well, <laughs> no, no. Look, I, I love having guests. I do... Tons of research, you know that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> now, Adrian, eighty-eight um, Ferrugia. That's a very lovely name. I like that. Where does that come from? Uh, it's a Maltese name. A Maltese, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I am the only one born in Australia in my family. Yeah. Uh, how, how did? The rest of the family feel about that. <laughs> well, that was, that was sort of their choice, I suppose. <laughs> um, but you know, people often ask me, you know, do you know this or that Ferruja, and don't realise that it's a super common name, and there's, yeah. a, there's heaps of us in Australia. Oh, there's heaps. You're everywhere. I mean, yeah. the Maltese. You've got the who have you got the? Uh, come on, tell us some common Maltese names. There's the Ferruja, Camilleri, Camilleri. Yeah, these uh, are all what's Italian. What's his name? McAuliffe. Yeah, yeah, McAuliffe. These are all Italian names. What's yeah. going on here? It's almost I mean, like it's almost like those two countries are quite close together. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, look, Adrian. I, I, it's really not, it's not actually Italy and Malta. It's Sicily and Malta. That's Let's get true. it right. And then That's we've got true. those little islands in between That's the Aurelian Islands and all them. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to meet somebody whose genetic uh, makeup could be very similar to mine. Mm. You've got the same exceptional body physique that I've got. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, brothers and sisters? One older brother, yeah. Oh, you mentioned him. He was bald, yeah. yeah. Uh, tell us about your parents. Are they still alive? Yeah, they are. Oh, you've got to be pleasant then. So, yeah. tell us about their background and uh, why they came here. Um, so, they... Um, so, yeah, they're both Maltese, mm. men in Malta, um... Originally, they moved to Edinburgh for a few years. Um, I think primarily that was for my dad to do his PhD. He's a hematologist, which mm-hmm. is like a yep, doctor yep. of blood. Yeah. Yep, yep. And um, then they moved back to Malta with the intention of sort of settling down there. And uh, before that, my brother was born in Edinburgh. So then they moved back to Malta. That's like where they're going to live, where mm-hmm. they're going to live their life. And then some you know plans changed and they immigrated to australia in 1987 87, i think right. that's um, a lot of study being a hematologist did he was he a scientific or a doctor hematologist oh uh, yeah like a research scientist a research scientist yeah. that's that's a lot of work doing a phd yeah i know i know <laughs> it's a bloody bloody a lot of work and to uproot yourself from your from your uh, family and friends and mm. go to Edinburgh, a bloody cold place. Mm, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, how's your brother feel about the cold? Uh, I think he's about as fond of it as I am, which is, is not very fond. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just thinking he was born in Edinburgh. Yeah, right? Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're a British citizen, aren't you? Uh, EU citizen. <laughs> EU citizen. <laughs> You realise you can't stand for federal parliament. Yeah, that's no problem for it's me. It's not a problem for you. <laughs> no, as if I would do that. It's not an issue. No. Have you got any idea about the background of your parents? Uh, the type of, I mean, it's unusual for somebody uh, in that era mm. to go to Edinburgh to get a PhD. Because um, most Maltese were basically of a farming background, weren't they, apart from those that lived in the... 
in the main city? Or I actually don't know that much about it, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you get older, you'll want to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, want, you haven't got any kiddies, have you? No. Ah, oh, well, when that happens, you'll want to know. Yeah. You want to regale them with stories of the, <laughs> you know, the Crusaders, the, oh, you know, yeah, the Knights yeah. of Templar Knights. Yeah, Knights based of St. John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bombings during World War Two. Yeah, you've heard in all the about that. You've heard all the ga- Yeah, my nun who told me a lot about oh, that. Oh, tell us about that. That's, that's, that's fascinating because a lot of people don't understand how... Malta, mm. which is the tip of Italy, you know, didn't actually succumb to the Italians, which is obvious because we don't like fighting, mm. or the Nazis. No, they was, didn't. Although it was bombed mercilessly. Yeah. And you've got what the was it the Maltese Cross was created, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think isn't it the, the St George Cross, Cross was given yeah. to the whole country by the British. Empire, I suppose, yeah. by the crown. Yeah, but um, <laughs> they're sovereign. Yeah, for their like bravery in the war. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, at that point, obviously, Malta was were British subjects. Yeah. yeah. So, so, what did Janonno say about? Obviously, he was part of that scene when he was underground and being bombed. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I didn't know. I I wouldn't say I knew him that much, but I, you know, the few times that I went to Malta and stayed with him, um, he did speak about it. You know, he was uh, working on the dry docks. Yeah. As a young man, um, talking about the bombs coming down while they were doing this work, and mm. Um, mm. spoke very proudly about the fact that you know Malta didn't give in, and yep. that the Italian air force has exactly some well, I agree. Name. and the Italian cavalry. Yeah, can I tell you a story about my uncle who's now deceased? Mm. He was conscripted into the fascist army in 1936, and they were sent to Ethiopia, mm-hmm. right, to um, you know to conquer the locals, and 6,000 of them arrived, conscripted soldiers, and mm-hmm. the um, soldiers went into battle and the conscripts just stayed behind and they just <laughs> <laughs> left their guns on the ground. They did a Muhammad Ali. They said, no Ethiopian's ever given me any trouble. Why should I give well, them any trouble? That's a very reasonable position. <laughs> it was. I was very proud of my uncle yeah. when he told me that story. Most yeah. other people, and that's what it was. There was this... General resistance mm. to Italian fascism because, uh, yeah, but Malta was different. You were part of the British Empire. Yeah. So, do you know any Maltese? No, not really. I mean, I know the kind of Maltese that your um, parents say to you when you're growing up. Yeah, so, like, like, you know, put the TV down, take the bins out, <laughs> where you're going, it's time for dinner, right. you know, all that kind of stuff. All that yeah. Well, where you're going. So, you were born in Melbourne, were you? No? Yeah, I was born in Melbourne. Uh, commiserations. <laughs> so, what did you go to preschool? Oh, I think so. Oh, well, let's, let's, if you can't remember, don't worry about it. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, how about primary school? I definitely went to primary school. Yeah, yeah I did that one. Would you like to tell us your old alma mater? Um, I so I've got a few. A few primary. What was yeah. it, was your dad going from laboratory to laboratory? Was well, it? sort of. Yeah, I mean we. Um, they li- so they, I was, my family were living in St Albans when mm-hmm. I was born. So that's where they first lived when they came here. You know, the Wild which, West, eighty eight, yeah. the Wild West. Yeah, and used to be called Little Malta. <laughs> that's you know, right. there was a lot of Maltese there. Yeah. So I mean, I went to a, a primary school or a preschool around there that I can't remember. Yeah, that's and then right. they moved to Eltham, mm. and I went to a school there that Public I can't really or remember. Catholic. Was probably Catholic. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yep. yeah good Maltese. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so then there was that, and then they moved to Canberra. Canberra? So, yeah. What, did he get a government job? Uh, they both did. Ooh. Yeah. What, what type of, what department were they both in? 
So um, Dad was working for the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Yep. So if you know that. Yeah, great, great, great department. Yeah. Keeps all the bodgy drugs out of Australia. Does its best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, regulates the drugs. And um, no, Mum at the time was actually a pharmacist working in a pharmacy. She right. moved into the government later. Right. Well, yeah. she was she part of the pharmaceutical regula- pharmaceutical benefits regulation scheme. Oh, yeah, Who knows? You're just a kid. Exactly what you're just a did. kid. Yeah. yeah no, it was. <laughs> uh, this sounds like a very idyllic childhood as a primary school kid, wasn't it? You just oh, drifted through. Well, I mean, well, it, it was sort of. Um, you know, you have no control over these things as a little kid. Mm. I wouldn't say it was. Um, you know, it was ideal and that I was often, you know, like, I was like, oh, I have to make new friends again and whatever. But That's you right. kind of, like, don't think about it. I just no, You just do no, it. No. Yeah. So it, then there was three primary schools in Canberra. You didn't have to go through the shit I went through in primary school, did you? By that time, if you were in the ACT, they'd be educated, educated, as they say. <laughs> wouldn't they? They wouldn't give, you know... Racist jokes and push you around in primary school. Well, no racist, not in primary school. Certainly no. in high school. Oh yeah, we'll a lot of that. Yeah, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, well, let's leave primary school. It just seems to blur your whole life. <laughs> let's go to high school or well, secondary right. college. Did you go to a private secondary college? Um, so yeah, in Canberra, the the system split. Yeah, tell us about it. So yeah, the 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 public system goes. High school's 7 to 10, and then they've got what's called college, which is 11 and 12, a separate institution, separate building and all the rest of it. And then the private schools go, well, some of them have primary school, but they go 7 to 12 because they really want to lock you in, (laughs) Um, keep you there. So I did 7 to 10 in a Catholic private boys' school, but that wasn't my vibe. Hang on, hang on, hang on. This is interesting. A private Catholic boys' school. Mm, Yeah. Is there any jokes you can tell us? Jokes? Not ones that are good for radio. <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. Can I, can I tell you a joke? Yeah. I, I learnt this as a... I only went to a Catholic school for a, a year and then my father pulled me out. I think he heard there was a mm. pedof- pedophile priest around the place. Mm. But the joke is, um, what's black and white on the inside, yellow on the outside and screams? You're going to have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> a yellow cab full of nuns going over a cliff. Oh, God. That's what we used to think. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we used to think of the nuns in those days. Yeah, right. Sorry, sorry, Sister Teresa. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm getting the cuts again. Maybe mm. that's why he took me out of high school, mm. Catholic school. So what was life like as a between 7 and 10 in a Catholic boys' school? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't ideal. <laughs> so it was a Marist. It was a Marist school. Oh, if you know about those, yeah, oh, very yeah. old fashioned. Yeah. You know, has the brothers, like yeah, not like the nuns, brothers, but, you know, yeah, the male yeah, version yeah. basically. Um, it's funny you mentioned the thing about sexual abuse. Yes. Yeah, the one of the brothers who was our uh, what do you call it? principal for a couple of years when I was there. Mm. Years later, when I was mm. you know, years years later, was event was convicted of that yeah. um, or yeah. something along those lines. So. Mm. Uh, and I remember him. But, um, yeah, that wasn't ideal. That wasn't a good environment. It was very old-fashioned, you know, single gender, so very, you know, traditional masculinity, really sport-orientated in Canberra. That's rugby. Um, not much, you know, much less focus on kind of, you know, academics, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> <laughs> you were meant to do the drudgery, the work the little immigrant boy was supposed to do. Is that correct? Yeah, and there was certainly a lot of um, 
I was definitely reminded of my <laughs> ethnic background pretty regularly by the right. other students. <laughs> and obviously they were all descendants of convicts. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> and and, 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 and uh, mass murderers in the colonial enterprise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if only you knew Australian history then, you could have really smeared them. Yeah, if only I'd been taught it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't teach you those things. So did your parents feel you were unhappy there? Um, did you tell them every night, I don't want to go back? It's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's. I think it's hard... Um, when you're young to really communicate those things. Uh, I don't think I communicated it very effectively, <laughs> but there was certainly, I mean, I certainly was vocal about it at times. But, you know, I think a lot of people just think, you know, kids don't like school. So mm -hmm. it's hard. But, you know, eventually I did leave, and that was after a few years of consistent, um, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get the message across, but it took mm -hmm. a little while. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so yeah, they, so got, they you, got a sense. They got a sense that you weren't happy. Mm. So... Uh, where did you end up after that? Um, so in I went to the what? So yeah, in Canberra's got this college system. So then you, you the public, you know, you just have like the zones. Yep. So I just went to the local college. Mm -hmm. So year eleven and twelve, which was called Narrabunda College, which is the suburb Narrabunda oh, was and, near where I lived. And how did you feel there? How did you? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, that was a big deal. So that was a huge shift. Um, so, you know, mixed gender, so that makes a big difference. Mm. Just year 11 and 12, so the whole kind of vibe of it is, yeah, you know, different. Right. Um, you know, despite my constant promising to my mum that I would work hard there and I didn't need discipline to get me to do well and all the rest <laughs> of it, I did not work hard at all. And you did well? Uh, no, didn't <laughs> do very well. <laughs> I just didn't work hard and didn't do well and didn't care. <laughs> just, I like that. I had a good didn't, time. <laughs> had a good time. Yeah. You've really encapsulated the Australian teenage ethos <laughs> of the period. Yeah, yeah. You weren't a surfer, were you? No, no, Canberra's inland. I know, no, no, but you know, you could have gone up to, no. to Katoomba. Yeah. You weren't a surfer? I, was, I did skateboard at you the time. Skateboard, yeah. did you? Well, what's your best trick? Well, then, not now. <laughs> oh, I, could, it's, I feel embarrassed even answering that question. I could do a few tricks, a few flips, a few grinds, things like that. Yeah, yeah oh, okay. Well, what do I make a bit? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just misspent youth. <laughs> Mum was very misspent. So this is not good. You're in the ACT. You've got parents who've got expectations. You get to year 12. You're, not, you're just enjoying yourself. So, so what happens at the end of year 12? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say that. Like, I come from a pretty academic family, which mm. certainly would be considered that, but I didn't feel particularly any kind of real pressure to do well. There was just kind of a vibe that I should be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it wasn't heaps of pressing, yeah. that I, you know, yeah. to change my ways. Yeah. Um, at the end of year 12, you know, you get a score... I got a fairly mediocre one, um, but uh, university wasn't really considered an, op uh, an optional aspect of life in my family. So basically I did this kind of like bridging course to one of the unis in Canberra called University of Canberra right. that allowed you basically to go to uni even if you didn't do well. <laughs> That's what it was for. So Good. I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so you went to uni. Yeah, for uh, sort of part time and for a little, yeah, about the year. A year. Yeah, and then you decided this is not for me. 
Well, then or I they, moved or, or, or do they decide? You're not no, no, I decided. But then I moved back to Melbourne. That, yeah. was, that was a big move. Yeah, it was a big move. Because what, you've been about 22, 21? 19. 19. Yeah. You left home, left yep. the nest, flew back to Melbourne. Drove back. with Well, I didn't drive. Sat in the passenger seat in my friend's car. <laughs> came back to Melbourne. Came back to Melbourne. Did you yeah. have any expectations when you came back? No, I didn't really think about it at all. My mm. friend just said he wanted to, so I said, oh, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. And we can, like, that'll be cool. We can go to gigs and, yeah, 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 and have yeah. a good time. Well, were you, were you a bit of a musician or something? I'm more just a fan. A fan? Yeah. <laughs> We've had musicians in this studio, and they're unsufferable. <laughs> so I'm glad you're just a fan. No, just a yeah, fan. You know, because before you know it, they pull out the guitar or flute. Oh, no. You know, all that. All that type of garbage, they do all that, and uh, you know, and uh, Kelly kind of swoons, <laughs> and I go, Oh, but I don't show it. All right, here you are, another 19 year old mm. in the Melbourne Burbs, I assume, somewhere in a shared house in the CBD. Uh, shared house in, in the western suburbs, so it's sort oh, of my bit, roots, you know. Um, that's a bit radical. What didn't you have enough money to live in the CBD? I just didn't really know what was cool. <laughs> Well, you were from Canberra. Yeah, exactly. I really had no idea, so I moved to Yarraville, you know, in New Footscray. Hey, that's the CBD. Oh, well, Have you looked at property is. prices at yeah, Yarraville well, I couldn't recently? afford to live there now. No, no there's no <laughs> way. I was, I was down at Yarraville a few months ago, and I was meeting some people at the railway station, some mm. locals, and they had, you had the gentrified locals, mm. and you had the original locals who were bitching about the gentrified locals, and the gentrified <laughs> locals were bitching about the locals because the they weren't, weren't keeping their gardens up to scratch. What year, what year was this, Adrian? It <laughs> uh, would have been 2000 and... Ah, oh, it's Kevin 07. It was 2007. 2007. Mm. 19, Labor Yarraville, the centre of the known universe. <laughs> so that's not the western suburbs, mate. No, not really, is the it? Derrimut, Tarnif, yeah. they wouldn't even been there then. Yeah. Williams Landing, that's mm. the western I suburbs. I shouldn't have given it away. I should have just stuck at western suburbs. <laughs> yeah, you just it ambiguous. Yeah, I thought you'd gone back to uh, Avondale Heights or Mill Park, but no. obviously you didn't. <laughs> All right, so what is a 19-year-old with no skills, mm. I mean academic skills, I'm mm. sure you've got tons of life skills, do to earn a living? Um, I, uh, I first worked in a call centre. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was rough. Oh, it is. It's a terrible job, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it wasn't so, good. I feel so sorry when people ring me up. Mm. You know. You should. I, well, I do, but I know that if, if I waste their time, mm. they get docked. So I'm just, I just say, thank you, bang. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's fine. Yeah. As someone who's done it, that's completely fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us, what's the best way? Because all of us are going to get two or three calls today. Mm. How long were you in the call centre for? Like maybe four months. Four months. And you're there basically to make a buck. Yeah. And you've got to fo- follow a script, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody rings up and is, uh, you know, they're kind of annoyed, what's the best way? They don't tell you to piss off or get out of my life. What's the best way to deal with it? No, it's just like anything that someone, any annoying question someone asks, you can just say no thanks and hang up, that's fine. <laughs> no. No, no one expects you to stay on the line, you know, like yeah, it's right, like right. you've got, I was doing surveys, right? So yeah. you've got to get a certain amount a day, yeah, seven or whatever it was. Yeah. And so, you know, the more time spent on someone who's not going to do it, well. Waste of time, that's mm. right. What happens if you didn't get seven? Oh, nothing. 
<laughs> you, you, you still get, got paid. You, yeah, you get told that you that something might happen, but something might happen. Yeah. Ooh, vaporized. Yeah, I mean the best is if you get seven in the morning, yeah. and then you just spend the rest of the day avoiding making any calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Another uncle of mine, he was a, a gun. Um, what was he? A gun boner. That What's means that? That it's an abattoir worker, right? Mm. And they used to take the meat off the bones. He was a boner. That was his job. And the old days when the trade unions had a little bit of power, they would um, set a quota. And he'd go to work at 7 and come home at 10 because he'd finish his quota by 10, which is br- a brilliant, brilliant idea, same mm. concept. Yeah, it was brilliant. So this doesn't look like a promising career choice <laughs> no it wasn't <laughs> did you move into anything a bit more interesting after that no i <laughs> i the next job i had was um a job that i've kind of often explained to people when i'm trying to explain like what it means to you know, truly like alienating work mm-hmm. it was so i worked which i'm embarrassed to admit on the radio for the national australia bank um and what i did for them uh, first, I was kind of this guy, sort of, um, sort of filing, but it was kind of ambiguous what I was actually doing. So as you can tell, the training wasn't very good. So I was sort of sending. There was this big backlog of documents that needed to go to places, you know, like probably like mortgage applications, stuff like that. And I um, went up before these things were fully digitized, and I um, had to kind of file these and send them to different parts of Australia. But because I never really knew um, what I was doing, I would often just you'd make these stickers and stick them on the envelope and send them somewhere. I would often just really wing that. And so potentially I was sending these documents to all sorts of parts of Australia without any real understanding of what was, of where they were going or where they were supposed to go. So I did did that. Well, that's that's good. Yeah, I because, mean... Because then you've got no moral issues, have you? Because you don't know what you're sending to whom. <laughs> yeah, unless those poor people who were trying to... Whatever they were doing. I mean, I, I mean, it just shows how little I knew what was actually happening. Oh, I can barely even answer, like... Yeah, what was the next dehumanising part of the NAB work? Well, then the next thing I did for them was um, this thing where... And I can only vaguely <laughs> explain to you what this job was. So there was two computer programs... And these numbers would appear on one of the programs. And my job was to cut and paste those numbers into another program, press enter. So literally, control C, control V on the keyboard all day, eight hours a day, just these numbers, just like a name and a number, name and a number. So you can imagine some computer programming, very basic programming, could get these two programs to work, to just talk to each other. But that's not how it worked. I was just there for eight hours doing that. I reckon you're laundering money, mate. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I I couldn't even I couldn't even I under I had I knew so little about how the system worked yeah. I couldn't even begin to launder well, money. Well, let's move on. I'm getting depressed. Yeah. Well, let's move on. What what happens next? So then, those sorts of experiences made me think that I should go back to university. I think that's the most sensible thing you've done, Lan. I'm yeah. sure your parents were very happy. About they were very stoked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were very pleased. And they sent you some money to help you? No, no but <laughs> no. they were very pleased. <laughs> yeah. So which university? Uh, Monash. Oh, that's all right. What did you do there? I did a double degree in arts and education. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was going to be a secondary teacher. You thought? I thought, yeah. What do you mean you thought? Thought, thought. Why? Oh, uh, I just thought it was a reasonable thing to do in life. 
Well, it is. It's a positive thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why did you change your mind? Here you had, you, you're going to become a secondary teacher. You've done all this work, a double degree. Mm. I didn't like it very much, and I didn't well, think that I was good at it. You didn't like these seven grade seven, seven to ten, these little snotty-nosed bastards that you were one of? I thought that they, <laughs> I thought that they were all right. I just, <laughs> I just found the work itself difficult. I mean, I right. think in hindsight, I was just really naive, like as if anyone's just going to be good at teaching when they've done a few placements at uni, yeah. whatever, you've got yeah. no idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just had to, you know, I just, I think ultimately what was happening is I just wasn't into it. Yeah. It wasn't the pedestrian nature of the conversation in the staff room. <laughs> well, that was actually the period where I um, started where I sort of got into AFL because I wanted to have something to talk about <laughs> in the staff room. And that was a very effective strategy, and it's it, sadly with me yeah. to this day. Well, I, I had the same problem when I came. Who's your team? Uh, Western Bulldogs, of course. Of course, of course. He's, he's Western roots. <laughs> See, I had the same problem when I came to Melbourne in 76. Mm. I was asked to pick a team, and I said, what team? Because I used to play rugby league in Queensland. I learned very quickly it's the only way to get invitations mm. in Melbourne to, you know, Non-radical things, you know, just ordinary stuff. <laughs> so, Western Bulldogs, Monash, uh, yeah, it's all right, yeah, so no secondary teaching, so what happens next? Um, didn't know what to do at the end of the degree, and um, I did honours, I did another year. Oh, someone in the other studio is holding up their Western Bulldogs scarf. Oh, no, no, the disease has even infiltrated through. So. <laughs> of all I, I particularly hate all AFL, but I'm not going to tell anybody that. <laughs> it's a boring game. You know, what's, what's, there's no toxic masculinity about it. No, I'm not <laughs> even going to defend it. <laughs> You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. All right, so you get kicked out of secondary college. You kick yourself out, right? Yeah. So it's a bit of a worry, isn't it? You've just wasted four years of your life. Well, yeah, I did another year at mm. uni doing this thesis about I'm... education, actually. <laughs> Was there a particular topic? Yeah, so that's when we sort of lead into the kind of work I'm doing oh. now. I did a thesis about drug education. Why drug education? Well, I just um, had a personal interest in it. I thought it was an interesting topic. It yeah. kind of brings up a lot of, um, you know, interesting kind of, you know, like the kind of fears around drugs and, you know, the big fear of young people and drugs, you know, really freaks people out and, how to like educate around that? I just think it highlights all sorts of interesting things about like society and understandings about young people and stuff. Mm. So I, um, but I was in an education faculty, so I did the, did analyze a bunch of drug was, ed. Was it a master's or a PhD? Uh, I was at this point. It was an honors. An honors. And yeah. What do you mean at this point? What happens next? Well, then I did a PhD, a PhD. building on that research. Yeah. Well, did you lord it over your father? Uh, I didn't. I, I have to say, it was almost. Um, it wasn't really such a big deal to them. My brother had one as well. Oh, your brother had one. But it was almost like it was a, everybody in the family. If you didn't, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was almost like the bait. It was like the entry level degree in my family. <laughs> so you didn't get any postdoctoral work. 
No, well, not no, not from them. <laughs> not from them. <laughs> I can see it now, the family picture. All of you in your gowns. Very oh, nice. God, yeah, very, yeah. Very nice, very nice. <laughs> Did you actually go to the graduation ceremony for your parents? No, I didn't. Did you, you missed your graduation ceremony? I did, yeah. You never bought your little hat and monkey suit? I didn't, no. That's no. pathetic. I know, I mean, but it was, in, it was in Perth. I was at a... What? I, was, I studied in Melbourne, but I was at... Enrolled in Curtin Uni, which is a union in Perth. So I was in Perth. So I was going to fly over there for that kind of thing. It's, it's the story of your life. Is this remote, remote learning? I suppose so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, an in, there was this kind of institution that was connected to Curtin in Melbourne called the National Drug Research Institute. So mm. I was there. Mm. So and I had a few colleagues. And what was the PhD on? That was, a, that was just building on the drug education. So it was about drug education. It was about, and also about young men... Young men's like party druggies. All right, mm. all right. Let's get. So, what are you currently doing? I've just wrapped up a fairly big project about hepatitis C treatment uptake, mm-hmm. and just started a new. Literally, the last month, a new project returning to some of the drug ed stuff. So, looking right. at right. Um, drug education, young people's drug use, and stuff around gender. All right, let's let's go back a few steps because obviously you've um, worked in the field for a fair while, and obviously you've got observations and personal experiences that most other our listeners haven't got. Now, you said the big worry among uh, older folk is about kids taking drugs. Is it an issue? Well, it's a um, it's a social dynamic. It's, mm. it's a, That's why I'm asking it's, you. Yeah, it's a social phenomena mm. that um, is understood in various different ways, mm. um, can be constituted as purely problematic. That's not the angle that I would take. Um, so, yeah, it's an issue in, in that it exists in society and needs to be engaged with and considered. Mm. And do you think, mm. that you think this is a constant feature of human evolution that um, all societies have particular um, substances they incorporate into their uh, structures and um, culture yeah well i mean it is i mean <laughs> it, i mean well like, i'm just I trying mean, to show that you know it's not something that just happens yeah know, of course yeah. yeah i mean i would never i mean I, I would always hesitate to make you know completely blanket statements but mm. there's a lot of good historical work to show that forms of intoxication have taken shape in uh, many different societies for a very <laughs> for millennia. You know what yeah. my favourite one is. Mm. Uh, I've been up there, the Inuit, mm. and during spring they collect uh, magic mushrooms, and they'd have their hallucinogenic experiences. But they collect the urine and freeze it for winter. They collect the urine and freeze it. for Urine w- from what? Them. Oh, themselves. Themselves. They will collect their urine, freeze it, and then reuse it during the winter period. It's still psychoactive. Yeah, not as not as psychoactive, but still. Mm. That's an interesting practice. I've yeah. not heard of that one. Yeah, I thought yeah. you may not have heard of that no. one. I thought that was very innovative. Yeah, it is. Obviously, yeah. over centuries, this yeah. is the way you deal with a, a harsh winter, you know? Yeah, yeah. Not just whittling wood and you know, eating yeah. dead meat. Um, what do you think the issues are? Is it are the main issues regarding drug use among young people, is it... Related to the fact that it's an illegal, it's an illegal uh, practice, or do you think it's the substance them- themselves? Yeah, I mean, I would always um, like I, I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't approach 
drugs um, from a position that they have innate qualities. So I would always want to position them carefully within the contexts that they're consumed and and that the practices around them take shape. And so obviously the prohibition of certain drugs has a significant, it's one significant aspect of um, how they are consumed and who consumes them and, and mm-hmm. yeah, and why and what, you know, happens in relation to that. Yeah. Um, well, obviously the risks, there are risks, but they're mm. enhanced when it's a, a group that's actually out there to make a buck from a substance with no regulation of any type, obviously. You think, yeah. you think most of the overdoses and horror stories we hear about are due to the fact that it's an illegal substance or the substance of themselves? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that the fact that um, certain drugs are prohibited contributes to um, their potential harms and overdose. I mean, it depends on what overdoses you're talking about, but opioid overdose is the one that everyone com- that comes to mind, and, yeah, I do think that. <laughs> I think that the prohibition of opioid drugs contributes to... Mm-hmm. Um, the ways that overdoses occur. Do you think people, as far as opioid drugs are concerned, do you think people can live a productive life and actually have long-term use of opioid drugs? Yes. Right. Okay. Um, so what are the issues regarding opioid drugs today, apart from the injecting room, I'm not just talking about that, but in terms of uh, um treatments for overdose because obviously you don't know what you're injecting and uh, overdoses are relatively common. Yeah, I mean, overdoses are in fact increasing in Australia every year to the point that they now kind of match. There was this period that you might remember in the late, I mean, I don't personally 1990s, remember 1990s, I remember Yeah, right, I know so it from, I know from the work. Yeah. Um, yeah, which was called the heroin glut and yeah. there was this peak period yeah. when um, yeah. there was a lot of overdoses and that's when the medically supervising injecting centre in Sydney is created and they had the, almost had the heroin treatment trial in um, Canberra that um, John Howard um, ended at the sort of last minute. Mm-hmm. So now we're at a point where overdoses are at sort of those kinds of levels. Um, <clears throat> the big kind of response uh, in more recent years has been the distribu- distribution of naloxone which is what's called an opioid antagonist. So what that does is essentially reverses overdoses at the point of them occurring. So if someone overdoses, you can inject them or you give them through the nose, that's the main one these days, and uh, restores their breathing because um, the reason people die from overdose is respiratory failure, so they stop breathing. Mm. Now, I understand over the last year or two there's been major changes in terms of who can and cannot access Narcan. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Narcan's the brand name of it. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, for a long time, you, well, it was, a, it, it was uh, the scheduling was reduced, so it became an over-the-counter medication that you can just buy. Um, and then there's been recent shifts that it can now be distributed within, you know, like um, peer programs and community organisations and that kind of thing, and that's a big, that's a big move. That's a good one. Um, but there's still issues with access. For example, you know, pharmacists might not just might pharmacies, sorry, might just might not carry it. Yeah, you know? but it's it's a game changer in terms of overdoses. It's a game changer in that it's um, really gives communities and individuals significant power to 
save lives and it really puts them in their hands. It's a very powerful tool. But what I would say, and you know, and I'm a huge supporter of it, um, but what I would also say is that it's important that when that we don't have that that an intervention like naloxone doesn't background some of the importance of other kinds of institutional or legislative shifts that could stop overdoses happening to begin with. Like what? Well, like um, potential um, decriminalisation initiatives or um, also like just destigmatization, destigmatizing initiatives. You know, like one of the reasons that people who consume drugs have such a hard time is that um, there are just terrible social attitudes towards them. Mm. So, I mean, naloxone is great at the point of crisis, but I'd like to see other things happening that um, reduce overdoses happening at all. How does that reduce overdose, reversing the stigma? Well, I think that, you know, when people's lives are constituted as more, like, intrinsically meaningful and um, not, you know, not pushed to, like, the margins of communities and considered just as part of community, um, it's less likely that they're going to have a range of other issues in their life. Um, I also think, and, you know, we just know this from just so much research that, um, you know, Concerns about stigma and discrimination are one of the biggest barriers for healthcare services for people who consume drugs. So then there's this kind of issue of um, people having a health concern, um, sort of ignoring it, not wanting to go in, feeling uncomfortable about going and seeing a doctor or whatever, or maybe feeling that they can't be honest, and then are using an emergency service because it's gotten to the point that now they need to access uh, emergency care rather than being dealt with in another part of the healthcare um, sector. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's a whole range of ways that, um, yeah, that this can happen. Right. Yeah. Uh, you realise that naloxone was available before you were born? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I actually got one of the first batches. Oh, really? In 1979, I was uh, in charge of the accident emergency department as a third-year graduate, could you imagine, <laughs> these days? You wouldn't even be able to. And uh, this batch of stuff came in. I don't know. It was a public hospital. Mm. I don't know. Obviously, the pharmacy had got some, whether it was a, a sample from the drug company. I don't know. And they said, this stuff is guaranteed to reverse opioid overdoses. Mm. And we said, oh, yeah, sure, because they... They'd come in on a regular basis and we'd have to put oxygen, resuscitate, and then the, the next day they'd piss off. So this bloke comes in. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. The ambulance rushes him in. He's blue. Mm. You know, we whack on oxygen. They hadn't even, didn't even have the oxygen in the, in the ambulance at that stage. We whack on the oxygen and he's not coming around. I said, oh, give us that shit. You know, mm. injected him. Within 60 seconds... He sat bolt upright and said, what the heck are you doing to me, blah, 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 and got up and ran out. And I set one of the nurses down. I said, you better go down the pathway just to make sure he hasn't collapsed because we were told that you could collapse if mm. you didn't give enough. So it was just it was just it's something that, I mean, I've been a doctor, what, for 47 years? Mm. And it's something I will never forget. Mm. It was like resuscitating Lazarus. Yeah, yeah. Extraordinary drug. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it is extraordinary. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the oxygen because, you know, like the Sydney Injecting Centre, they, my understanding is that they actually avoid using naloxone. They only use it sort of seldom and they prefer mm. oxygen and yeah. that kind of thing because you can bring people around more gently. That's right. And yeah. not have some of those kinds of experiences like you've just described. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you need, you need a good oxygen supply and good mm. staff who know what they're doing. 
So, party drugs. Tell us about party drugs. What's a party drug? I'm too old to know anything about party <laughs> drugs. Yeah, well, even the term party drugs is a bit naff now. It's a bit outdated. I'm not well, even sure exactly what people would say, but um, it's basically amphetamine-type stimulants. So it's like MDMA, speed. Mm. Um, what else would be a party drug? You know, there's some, like, pharmaceutical drugs like dexamphetamine would be considered a party drug. Uh-huh. Um, things like that, yeah. And what's this artificial... Cannabis crap, what's that? Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's not a party drug. Um, <laughs> no, it's not a party. No, yeah, I mean, the, the, those ones are tricky. Uh, what is it? The synthetic, the yeah, synthetic, synthetic cannabinoids, yeah. 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 Those ones are tricky because they ma- they're, they're so en- endless different ones being made all the time, so it's actually hard to even get a good grip on them. But there mm. is some term for them uh, that escapes me at the moment. Because I know uh, 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 I haven't had personal experience, but I know some people have had them. I've been very surprised at how personalities can change over time with the use of those drugs. Mm. So why why are people dying from the so-called party drugs? You hear occasionally, and why do, why are they interested in testing these drugs when people go to festivals and things? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I personally haven't done that much research on like overdose in relation to party drugs, but there's a whole range of things. I mean, the the testing issue is a good one because, um, you know, these drugs have, you know, because they're an unregulated market and all the rest of it have a whole lot of adulterants, Mm -hmm. uh, which that can be harmful. Um, There's also um, things related to, um, you know, like so in festivals, there's things related to people just sort of in some ways at times naively just being inexperienced and taking drugs unsafely or too much. There's also issues related to the uh, sniffer dogs, uh, people panicking, taking all of the drugs that they intended to take for a, in a day or whatever mm-hmm. uh, at once. Um, you know, some of those. I mean, those are the, that's the big one in New South Wales, just because of how much, how committed, for whatever reason, they are to the dogs up there. No, they've got, to, they've got to give them some work, mate. Yeah, I mean, I mean they, can't, they can't get any contracts with the federal police, you know, <laughs> to sniff people coming into the ho- into the country. They've got the contracts, you know. Mm. They've got to do something. You know what dogs are like. You've got to exercise them. Yeah, you've got to give them something to do. <laughs> <laughs> On a more serious note, have you taken much interest in the so-called Portuguese experiment? Yeah. I've Tell us about interest. it. Just, just, just explain what it is and how do you think it's changed things if it has. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on it, but basically they decriminalised all drugs. Uh, so, I mean, that's radical just because for the most part within a lot of countries, the kind of the discourse is, to you know, people will be like, you decriminalise cannabis or whatever, but they're not willing to go for the, the other more stigmatised and um, what are considered more dangerous drugs. So they decriminalised all of them. My general understanding is that They've had relatively um, good public health outcomes from that, you know, less bloodborne viruses and overdoses and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, even even in you know, and that's that's great. But even in saying that, I ha- you know, I think that there's been other there's been other shifts or you know related to that, you know, forms of treatment being available and that kind of thing. It's not just a matter of decriminalising all drugs and thinking that that you know everything's sorted. So you need the whole apparatus behind that too. Mm. And going back to your work with hepatitis C, mm. um, how long did that last? Uh, that project was just two years actually. Two years. Yeah. And what we're hoping to um, 
achieve or show in that project? Yeah, well, what we wanted to do was understand the uptake of hepatitis C treatment in Australia. So you might know that um, treatment was revolutionised in the last few years. So for a long time, uh, hepatitis C treatment was really unpleasant and unreliable. So less than 50% success rate and massive amount of side effects. Now there's got direct-acting antivirals, which are you know 95% success rate and for the most part have no side effects. So um, they're a real game-changer in the treatment. Uh, in Australia, when they were made, those drugs were made available you know, uh, you know, on the PBS in 2016 and there was really good uptake for a few years. And so Australia's kind of signed on to this World Health Organization goal of eliminating Hep C by 2030. And then this uptake kind of plateaued and has since declined. So we were kind of investigating that, the sort of social dynamics of that. Um, so we want to sort of understand that. And also we wanted to do some public-facing kind of non-academic outputs um, that basically tell people's stories uh, in relation to Hep C, talk about their lives, as well as um, provide a resource for people who are thinking about hepatitis C treatment or thinking about people they know or that kind of thing. Right. When you say we, who's we? Oh, the research team. <laughs> Come on, name them. They've done oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the project was led by um, the uh, director of the... Se- so I work at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe Uni, and that right. director of that is named Professor Suzanne Fraser. Mm-hmm. She led the project um, with other investigators, Carla Trelaw, who's from University of New South Wales, and David Moore, who's also from the same centre as me. Mm. And um, we, um, myself, Renee Formiati, who's now a researcher at Deakin, and Emily Lenton, who is a researcher with us, um, conducted this this qualitative project. So, like, we interviewed wow. people who um, have mm. lives affected by Hep C. Do you think, do you think the uptake has plateaued because... GPs have lost interest with COVID-19 or mm. did you come to any conclusions? There's definitely, I mean, there's also, look, there's no doubt that COVID-19 has had an impact on um, the uptake of hep C treatment, but I'm sure it's had an impact on all sorts of yeah. Yeah, health conditions that I don't know anything about. Mm. Um, so that's definitely one thing that's happened. I think that um, also the there was a very large group of people who were actively engaged in the alcohol and other drug sector, so they had very high awareness of hepatitis C and they were basically waiting for the new treatments to come and they they all jumped on board straight away. Then there's this big group of people who may have had hep C for a very long time, from a, got it from some part of their life which is very much in the back in the past now. They're not connected to that sector at all. And outside of that sector, the promotion of hepatitis C treatment is much weaker. So there's an idea that, that there's this kind of concern that there's all these people who, um, because Hep C is just not connected to their life anymore, they don't know that there's this new treatment. Um, they don't know that it's basically just a cure now, rather yeah. than this kind of harrowing old mm. treatment. Mm. And that yeah, they haven't about themselves. Bored. So what's the future hold for Doctor Adrian Ferrugia? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the future, that's a very big question. <laughs> well, you know, you're a researcher. The near future or the near future? The near, fu- the oh, near future. Well, it could be, could be the future in 90 years' time. Exactly. Yeah, don't put words in <laughs> our guest mouths. Um, 
Well, I guess I'll just stick to the work side of things then. And um, what? No, no holidays, no happiness, no playfulness, no partners. Just work, work, work for Adrian. <laughs> I guess there's all those things as well. Um, I mean, the party boy from high school has now become a workaholic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it depends. It depends what day we do the interview. Um, um, now, look, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into this new research about young people's drug use. I haven't, you know, I've kind of missed that. I like uh, interviewing young people about drugs um, because they often have a lot to say. I feel like they enjoy the opportunity because there's not that many avenues for op- or opportunities for them to speak openly about these things um, and especially to what they perceive to be someone who's sort of in authority or whatever, you know, mm. an academic from university. Um, you know, who's approaching it in an open and non-judgmental way. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, and, you know, now that we're allowed to travel, maybe I'll do that soon. You do. We're going to move into the personal, but I haven't really got any plans. I've never been good at planning holidays. You could visit the graves in Malta. That's what old people do, you know. Well, yeah, That's could, what I'm thinking of doing, but, I've never, not, but I haven't done it yet. You can go to the catacombs. <laughs> I've been to the, the very old graves. You've been to, you've been to the oh, catacombs? Of course I've been. <laughs> ah, that, that is an experience and a half. Did you love the rose petal made out of human pelvises? Did you see that oh, one? God, that's the kind of thing I would have taken a photo of. I, I can't remember. It's been a few years. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was spe- I can't forget. I went in 82 into the catacombs. Right. And I can't, I can't, I can't forget that, the rose petal made out of human. <laughs> but you know what the catacombs were for, don't you? Surely they were just for people to be laid to rest, right? No, bullshit. No. They were propaganda outlets. What mm. used to happen is the church wanted, the Roman Catholic Church wanted a tithe, a tenth of your income, right? Mm. So they used to herd the poor workers through the catacombs and talk about hell and how they would go to hell if they didn't pay their 10% to the church to do God's work. <laughs> That's what the catacombs were set up for. Yes. They were a modern macabre fear to pay. I mean, I should say early macabre theatre that's all it was the church loves a bit of macabre they do they do they do so final question you know drug taking Mm. you never hear about the fact that a lot of people take drugs because it makes them feel good (laughs) what what you know in your research that you've been doing is that a significant um reason or the main reason people take drugs it's a very significant reason that people take drugs all types of drugs yeah Uh, i mean it's probably no surprise to listeners that that's why people take party drugs but even the much more stigmatized drugs which are often constituted through really singular and narrow ideas of dependence and that kind of thing it's you know, people enjoy taking those drugs too. That is the pleasure of drugs is a significant force in why they are popular and why people do them. And it's, um, it's you know, sort of um, frustrating that it's even a controversial thing to say, you know, or that it, that, it, that it could be considered controversial. Oh, it is considered controversial. I mean, you hear about all the negatives and obviously yeah. you can't have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Australia taking a variety of drugs, if mm. they feel terrible. Mm. You know, obviously there are, like everything else, there are issues, you know. People smoke, mm. there's 20,000 deaths every year. There's emphysema, there's bronchitis, chronic bronchitis goes on and on. People drink alcohol, cirrhosis of the liver, mm. dementia, you know, Korfakoff syndrome. They're all syndromes people get from alcohol, but we accept them. And obviously when you look at the deaths from 
illegal drug overdoses, they're minimal in comparison to alcohol and tobacco. Yeah. Minimal, minimal. And in terms of draining on resources, God, shut up, Joe. Uh, now, Adrian, just in case we've got somebody under 20 listening to the program, mm. it's hard to believe, but we do have them occasionally. I even had a nine-year-old write to me last week about something listening to one of the programs. Um, what do you hold with the new government? Do you think there's going to be any change in drug policy or do you think it's going to be business as usual, the war on drugs? You know, I really don't know. I um, Australia has had a history of being very innovative in the 90s in relation to drugs and instituting, instituting harm reduction approaches that really, really went by the wayside um, and now we're really actually quite far behind. My guess, but it would really just be a guess, is that it'll just be more of the same. More of the same. Yeah, people don't want to touch it and this um, government, I reckon, is likely to be very middle of the road and very safe, safe when it yeah. comes to things like that. Yeah, it really was an issue. Although the, the marijuana party did quite well. Yeah, they the did. They did quite well. You they know. Did They've been around right. a long time, and yeah. uh, people were surprised at how well they did. So obviously, Australians are thinking about uh, issues like this, mm. and they're willing to put a vote for it. Not that they did much publicity, but it's a good name. Mm, it is a good name. <laughs> it's a good very name. clear what they're into. Yeah. So, any advice for a, a younger listener? General advice, it doesn't have to be about drugs. We're not telling you to tell them to take drugs, but we're just any advice if they're going to go down that path, any advice in terms of harm minimisation? Look, I'm not one to jump at the opportunity to give out advice on the radio. Um, I suppose I would just say something general about, um, you know, if you have interest in doing um, different things. It's the most important thing is who you're doing it with and looking out for each other. Exactly. And Regardless of the way you're spending time together. Exactly. If you're going to do something like that, don't do it by yourself. Yeah. And if you're going to do something like that, make sure you've uh, looked into the situation. Mm-hmm. I know when you're young and foolish or old and foolish, it's difficult, but sometimes, you know... It's important that you look into the situation. Mm. Well, Adrian Ferrugia, it's been a pleasure chatting to you, despite despite your youth. <laughs> you are a man with a lot of knowledge, <laughs> a PhD, a doctor, Adrian Ferrugia, mm. and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm sure in about six years you'll get your Order of Australia, if not an AO. That's an Order of Australia, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Thanks for having me. Cheers. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.